0: Kings chapter 4 um, is where we'll begin uh, reading. We'll, we'll start about verse 18, but just to give you a little bit of context about what we're about to look at, um, we're going to meet a woman in this passage uh, is often referred to, and I think even the passage at some point refers to her as the Shunammite woman. She is from a place called Shunem, which is why she's the Shunammite woman. And um, If you were here last week, you heard us talking about a woman who was from Zarephath of Sidon. That woman we learned was a pagan, a Gentile woman who did not know God, but she was, by God's grace, introduced to God in that story where her son uh, was brought back to life. By contrast, this woman we're going to meet today is a woman who is godly, she is Jewish, she is devout she knows the Lord. She's so devout, we won't read this in our story, but it happens prior to where we pick up. Uh, She is so devout that she's compelled to help a man named Elisha. Elisha is a prophet of God. He is traveling through the country, kind of goes up to, I think it's up to Mount Carmel where he's going to be, on, on occasion would be up there where we understand that he had kind of a, an, a, an ancient form of a seminary. He kind of pulled these, these preacher boys together and would teach them, and he would kind of show them what the, the Lord would have them to, to know. So he was training these prophets, and as he was traveling up there to do that, this woman compelled him, first of all, just to share a meal with her and her husband, Say, "Well, we'll feed you. And then later on, she proceeds to convince her husband, hey, we need to build this man a house. So that as he's traveling through, he can just stop off and, visit and and stay, have a place to stay the night, not have to travel through the night. And in the process of that relationship being formed there, Elisha says he wants to be, show his gratitude to this woman and her husband. And in verse 13 of, our te- of this chapter, we won't read it, but uh, she says to him, essentially, I've got everything I need. I'm, I'm satisfied. Don't need anything else. But God reveals to Elisha that he has a plan to give this woman a son. What I didn't tell you in this was that she had not had any children at this point. Um, she, and she was perfectly satisfied, but the Lord said, no, I'm going to give you a son. He does give her a son, and in verse 16 and 17, she has that son. He grows up, and, and we sort of, you know, as the fairy tales would say, and they lived happily ever after. But now we pick up the, the text in verse 18. Remember, she's had this blessing from the Lord. She is in this home of the, this home that has been blessed by God. Her faith is strong. The, fa- the faith of everyone around her is pro- pretty much failing at this time. But her faith is strong. But we're going to see tragedy striking this family's home. Now what is her faith going to do then? I want to ask you if you're able to infer- to stand with me as we read the Lord's words we're going to do so out of reverence for God's words knowing that these words we believe here at this church that these are actually words from God for this church for us right now. We pick up in 2 Kings chapter 4 in verse 18. And when the child was grown, it fell on a day that he went out to his father to the out, out to his father to the reapers. And he said unto his father, my head, my head. And he said to the to a lad carry him to his mother and when he had taken him and brought him to his mother he sat on her knees till noon and then died and she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door upon him and went out and she called unto her husband and said send me I pray thee one of the young men and one of the asses that I may run to the man of God and come again and he said wherefore wilt thou go to him today It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, It shall be well. Then she saddled an ass and said to her servant, Drive and go forward, slack not thy riding for me, except I bid thee. So she went and came unto the man of God to Mount Carmel. And And it came to pass, when the man of God saw her afar off, that he said to Gehazi, his servant, Behold, yonder is that Shunammite. Run now, I pray thee, to meet her and say unto her, Is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, It is well. And when she came to the man of God, to the, to, to the hill, she caught him by the feet, but Gehazi came near to thrust her away. And the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is vexed within her, and the Lord hath hid it from me, and hath not told me. Then she said, Did I desire a son of my Lord? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? Then said he to Gehazi, Gird up thy loins, and take my staff in thy hand, and go thy way. If thou meet any man, salute him not. And if any salute thee, answer him not again. And lay my staff upon the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, As the Lord liveth, and as my soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And he arose and followed her. And Gehazi passed on before them, and laid the staff upon the face of the child, and there was neither voice nor hearing. Wherefore he went again to meet him and told him, saying, The child is not awaked. And Elisha was come into the house. Behold, the child was dead and laid upon his bed. He went in, therefore, and shut the door upon them twain and prayed unto the Lord. And he went up and lay upon the child and put his mouth upon his mouth, his eyes upon his eyes, and his hands upon his hands, and stretched himself upon the child, and the flesh of the child waxed warm. And he returned and walked to the house, walked in the house to and fro, and went up and stretched him upon him. And the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when they had come in unto him, he said, Take, th- take up thy son. Then she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground and took up her son and went out. Let's pray. Lord, I want to pray that you'll bless your word less certainly the fact that we've read it, that these hearers have heard it. But Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit will come and apply this, attach it to our hearts, drive it deep, help us to see that our only hope, just like this Junamite woman saw, that our only hope was to be in your presence and to have you intervene in our circumstance. I'm praying that you will help people to see that. Help me to clearly communicate that. I'm praying this in Jesus' name. Amen. You all can be seated. What you just heard, if you were listening to the story there, is a perfect example of what real faith looks like. It's a perfect example of what real faith looks like in large part because I can tell you my faith compared to this woman's faith is nothing. My faith compared to this woman's faith is weak. My faith compared to this woman's faith Is puny. But what she's modeled for us is something I'm gonna call expectant faith, eager faith, faith that looks forward, faith that is expecting God to do a work. And for those of you that are sitting here this morning, and I know this may not be everybody in this room, but there's at least one or two of y'all who want to see God work and want to see God intervene in your situation, in your life, in your circumstances. I want you to look at this woman's life, and I want to sort of lay it out for you for the next few minutes to help you see what kind of faith she has and what she's modeling for you. When you want to see God work, you need to at least pay attention to this woman. You need to follow in her footsteps and see how we ought to have this kind of faith. The first thing that we start off in verse, in verse 18, we see that her son is in the field. He's sick. He's hurting. In verse 19, he says that his head is hurting. hurting his dad says take him back to mama but in verse 20 we see this mother doing what a good mother would do And i can't imagine there's a mother in this room that wouldn't do this you have your child that comes home that's sick and hurting and it says that she's he's on her knees essentially she's caring for him she's trying to 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 to, to nurse him back to health if you will you know, whatever, you know, give him, give him some soup, and get him comfortable, have him lay down on the bed, whatever it is she needs to do. She's doing all those things. She's caring for him. She's not giving up on her son. But then her son dies. I, I'm trying to emphasize to you that this is not a woman who doesn't care. She cares a lot. She, 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 she may come across as, as so, so strong in so many ways, but she really deeply cares for her son. So don't miss that in this story. But then in verse 20, at the end of it, it says he ultimately dies. So what does she do? In verse 21, she takes her son and she lays him on this bed in the room that she and her husband had made for Elisha. She lays him on that bed. We'll come back to this in just a moment, but look at what she does after she lays him down. She walks out and she shuts the door. And then the next thing that we know that she's calling out to her husband in verse 22 would you send one of the men to come out here, the, one of the guys that are working with you, would you send them to me? Get, get, me, a, get me a donkey together. Get me some, some transportation together. I'm going to go up and see the man of God. Now, the, the reason she's going to go see the man of God is that is as far as she knew, and this is why she's trying to help him, all the things that the relationship she has with Elisha is because she understood that at that moment in time, at that period of history, that Elisha was the person through which the power and the presence of God was showing up. Now just as a, as a side note, I want you to understand, you don't need some special man today. We have Jesus who's come, we have the Holy Spirit who dwells in every believer that's here. But there is something that, that is important about what she's doing, about trying to find Elisha, is she wants the power, she wants the presence of God. That's what, that, that's what he represents for her, is he's the power and the presence of God. And she goes to her husband, and she doesn't say to her husband, like would have been the, the tradition of the time, say, hey, husband, would you go take care of this for me? She's not doing that. She's saying, no, I want to go to the presence of the Lord. She's not doing any of those other things. She's going and she says, I want to be in God's presence. I want his power in this situation. There would not be any obstacle that she would allow to get in her way. There were obstacles. You, you read the story. You heard them. Like I said, cultural norms would have been, she would have not gone alone on this. She would have brought her husband along at best, probably even would have sent him a a way to go do this. But she says, no, I'm not going to let cultural norms get in my way. I'm going to go and take care of this. My boy is important to me. She wasn't going to let religious expectations get in her way. You even look at her husband's response, like you're going to go today. It's not a Sabbath day. It's not, it's not a special day. It's not, normally they would have gone up to see the prophet. They would have done this as a natural thing whenever the, the prophet would offer sacrifices for him. That would have been a normal thing to do. But he says it's not one of those days. It's not a time to go see the prophet. This is not the day to do that. It's not the religious thing to do. Why are you going today? You're going to bother the man. And she's not bothered by that. In fact, she uses this phrase here to, to her husband in verse 23. It says, it shall be well she repeats that, by the way, later on in, in Gehazi, in, um, in verse 26, where it says, it will be well. The words she's using there in the, the Hebrew, the words that she's using is the word shalom. She's saying peace, is what she's saying. It's a pretty traditional greeting, and I, I think she means some of what we might interpret that to mean in the English language, it's, it's, we shall be well, it, it sort of signifies the faith that she has, she's looking forward, but 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 I I happen to think that part of what she's doing here, now don't misunderstand me, this is a respectful woman, this is an honorable woman, this is a faithful woman, there's every every good trait that's here. You know what I think she's doing to her husband? Her husband's saying, why are you going to go up today, lady? What in the world are you doing? You know what she's saying? It's okay, I got this. It's okay, I got this. Leave me alone, get out of my way. Now, she's saying it nice, don't get me wrong. She's not being disrespectful, but she's saying, leave me alone, get out of my way. Y'all, y'all ever done that to somebody? They, they, they stop you in the, in the grocery store, and, and you're nice to them, you're polite, and you nod. It's, uh, everything's good. Now, you've got a million things on your mind, and if, they really, if you really want to talk to them, you could just pour out your spleen to them right there in front of everybody. But you've got things to do. What are you going to do? It's okay, everything's good. It's good to see you. Move on. That's what we do. That's what she's doing in this story. She doesn't let religious expectations get in her way. She doesn't let difficult circumstances get in her way. As best as I could tell that she is looking at a five to six hour journey, which on its own is daunting to me. I don't like to, like Eli, we're going to have to take him back to Black Mountain and that's about a three and a half, right on the edge of a four hour trip. One way. Not looking forward to that. But I get to ride in modern luxury for all intents and purposes. I can set a cruise control. I can listen to something on the radio. I can do all sorts of things. You know what this woman had to do? Five to six hours on the back of a donkey. That's what she gets to do. I can't even imagine wanting to do that, much less having to do it in a hurry because that's what she tells tells the man. She says, drive on, verse 24. Keep going. Don't let anybody stop you. You keep going. Don't stop. But she is ready to take this journey five to six hours on the back of a donkey. doesn't matter the circumstances. She's also got some deflectors and naysayers. This man Gehazi, which is a a servant of Elisha, he's doing his job in this story. Later on, Gehazi does turn a little ugly later on in another story. But for now, he's doing his job. He's doing what he's supposed to do. I mean, as I can imagine, somebody like Elisha who's got the power of God on his life, there's got to be all kinds of people trying to get at him and do all sorts of things. So what is his number one thing? How can I help you? How can I, how can I stop you from getting to Elisha? So he's doing all these things, but what does she tell him? It's well. It's well. Again, again I, I do think she had faith. I think that was su- suggested with what she's saying. But I also think she was telling Gehazi, get out of my way, I know where I'm going. I got somebody on my mind. I'm going to go talk to him. That's what I'm doing. His job was to intercept her, but she keeps on going. She was willing to fight through any obstacle to get into the presence of God. Now, I want you to think about what I just said here. What is keeping you out of God's presence? What's keeping you from spending time in God's Word and spending time in prayer to the Lord? Are you too busy? Is it too hard? Is it too unusual? It's Tuesday morning. Church isn't till Wednesday, Sunday. Why would I do all that now? Is that, is that, is that our mindset? No, you wouldn't ever say it out loud. I understand that y'all are in church. You know the right answer to say, but let's just be honest with how we think about these things. What's keeping you out of the presence of God? What's keeping you from salvation? Some of you have heard the message before, whether it's from me or from some other preacher or maybe a friend of yours that has told you, you need to trust in jesus christ that he is your only hope of salvation yet you're not accepting him what's keeping you from that and i'll admit to you it's difficult there are obstacles that get in your way because maybe you don't feel like you have enough information maybe you have some concerns maybe you're worried about what people's opinion of you might be there's all kinds of obstacles what's keeping you from seeking god for your children to know the lord There was a youth pastor that wrote this. He said that parents of teens should think about this. Someday you're going to discover your adult child is sleeping in on Sundays and not taking your grandchildren to church. Sunday travel ball today may mean that your grandchildren will grow up without Jesus. I'm trying to get you to see something. What if you're worried about your children? And you, I can't imagine there's not a, not a parent in here that's not worried about their children. But there are some obstacles that get in our way. They're normal, they're natural, it happens. Life is busy, there's a lot going on, I understand that. But are we going to allow sports pursuits? Are we going to allow our children's resistance to us are we going to allow our own careers? Are we going to allow any other number of things to get in the way of us pursuing the presence of God and saying, God, I'm worried about my children. I want them to be, to be helped. Can you help them? What is it that's keeping you from turning to God? This woman's fate said there's a lot of stuff in the way. There's a lot. And I can imagine if you, you sit here long enough and think about it, there's probably at least 100 things that get in the way. And if I, want, if I wanted to be really embarrassed myself, I could lay out all my, my dirty laundry and tell you all the things that get in the way of me pursuing the Lord. There's a lot of obstacles. But do we have the kind of faith that this woman has which says, I'm going to not allow those obstacles to get in my way. I'm going to break through those obstacles. I'm going to, yes, it's going to hurt. Yes, it's going to be a sacrifice, but I'm going to fight to get in the presence of God. Now, once she does get in the presence of, of the man of God in this story who represents for us, I believe, the presence and the power of God. When she gets into his presence in verse 27, she doesn't let him go. She grabs on his feet. She's grabbing hold to him. Gehazi, this man who's I don't know how if he was a big strong man or not but I believe he had some responsibility to be a bodyguard of sorts to Elisha and he probably was trying to gra- it says here he's trying to grab her and take her off of him and that wasn't even going to work. And if you look at what she does in this encounter in verse 26, 27, 28, if you were to look through that, she doesn't say a whole lot. She really doesn't. She's clearly distressed. I mean, wouldn't you be? I mean, she's lost her son her son's dead, she's clearly distressed, she's confused. Again, I tried to tell you a little bit about that story, but Elisha said, what do you want? And she says, I'm satisfied, I don't need anything. And the Lord says, you're going to have a son. And she says, don't lie to me. That's what she tells him. And don't lie to me. I don't need this. It's not a problem. I, I'm, I'm happy. I'm satisfied. Don't bring something to my life I'm not interested in if you're not, gonna, if you're not being serious about it. She, she was pretty blunt about it in the story. And she's confused. She's disturbed. She's not sure what's going on. I, didn't, I, I wasn't asking for anything to begin with. And now that I've got this son, I love him. Why, why, why would the Lord take him from me? She's confused. But she doesn't say a whole lot. But whatever it is, maybe it's her spirit, maybe it's God himself, not sure what all, the Bible doesn't really give us exactly what's going on here, but she convinces in verse 29, she convinces Elisha to go ahead and try to help out. She convinces him. But even then, in verse 30, look what she says in verse 30. As the Lord liveth and as my soul liveth, I will not leave thee. She's hanging on. She's hanging on for dear life. She's clinging to him. Now, I don't know that she even knows what she wants in this situation. Surely she wants her son's life, I'm sure of that. But I don't think I don't think it ever really entered her mind. My, my opinion is it would have never, if my child had died, it would not enter my mind. Well, I think he's going to come back to life. It just probably wouldn't have come back in her mind. But she knew she just wanted something fixed about this situation. It hurt her so much and she didn't more what to do with it so she's going to the man of god and she is clinging to him saying i want to be on your agenda i want you to intervene in this situation she reminds me of the woman who has an issue of blood in the new testament the bible talks about this woman had a blood disease and she is not able to physically even really move but she knows that jesus is going to come by so she finds her way into this crowd and what does she do she just tries to touch the hem of his garment I don't even know that she knew what she wanted. She just knew he had what she needed. Whatever that was, she just knew. And she didn't think she could make him do it, but she just wanted to get close enough to him. What I'm trying to get you to see is this woman, she went through all kinds of obstacles. And when she got to the man of God, and when when she got into the presence of God, she didn't know what she wanted, but she just knew, I'm not going to let you go. I need something from you. You're going to have to help me out. What is it you'll be willing to do to get on God's agenda? Now, don't misunderstand me. I want you to know, first of all, that God is for you. I've said this once. I'll say it a hundred times. God, every person in this room, every person in this room, God is for you. He is for you. He cares for you, and he wants to bless you. The Bible tells me that he foreordained your salvation. He worked before the beginning of time in love to make it possible for you to simply turn to him in faith and believe and to save you. He's worked all of that out. But have you asked him to save you? Have you actually cried out to him? Lord, I don't know what all this stuff means. I don't know exactly, but I know that you love me. Have you actually raised your voice and said, God, I need you? Have you asked him to save you? I want to assure you, every person in this room, he has worked every last detail out. There is literally nothing more that you must do than to simply believe that what he said is true hold on to him and say i don't know what i'm going to do i don't know how this stuff works i don't know about this regeneration i don't know about justification i don't know about sanctification i don't understand all this stuff but i need what you got lord give it to me whatever it is he'll work it out i think some of you in this room have heard this message so much and you're trying to figure out all the answers And and, and let me just go ahead and tell you, the theologians, they study it, and they ain't got a better clue than you got. They don't. Do you know what you need? you got to get a hold of the hem of his garment. Work everything you can to get into his presence. Say, God, I don't understand, but I know I need you. Call out to him. We believe that God cares for us. I do. But if you ask him to save your children... Have you asked him for that? You may say, well, I want my kids to turn out round. Well, have you actually asked the Lord? God, can you intervene? I, I'm not a good parent. I'm not smart enough. I don't, I, they ought not have given me a license to have a kid. By the way, they don't do that. They just let you have the kids. But um, they ought not have given me a license to have this kid. I, I don't know what I'm doing. But God, I need you to do something because this child, if you don't intervene, this child is going to go to hell. This child is going to have a life on this planet that is terrible, but I need you, God, to intervene in their world. God does care for us, but do you hold on to Him when you're in distress and you don't even know how to stand? When was the last time that you actually fasted and prayed for anything make sure you understand what i'm trying to ask you here i'm not saying that god is up in heaven saying well i'm waiting for them to fast and pray i don't think that's how it works but the fasting and the praying does sort of signal something that you're desperately clinging to god that says i got no other hope but you when was the last time, as the Bible says in Romans chapter eight, verse twenty-six, He says that the Spirit makes these groanings which can't be uttered. When was the last time that you actually depended on the Holy Spirit of God to, to communicate the pain and the distress of your soul? I can tell you my own experience is when I'm in that point where I'm so, so pain that I can't even pray. You know what I do? I don't even pray. I'm just honest with you. That's what I do. That's the wrong thing to do. And you say, well, I don't know what to say, and that's what I say. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to ask him. You don't have to know what to ask him. It says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 26, look it up sometime, look up it now if you want to. Go look at it. It says that he makes groanings for you that you it can't even be uttered he takes that message to the ear of god he communicates the things that you can't even say but if you will just get on your knees and reach out like that woman who had the issue of the blood and say i just want to get a hold of you a little bit i'm not it's not going to i'm that's not going to fix anything you're the one that is but i'm just going to do anything i can to get onto the edge of god and know that he is the one that can solve my situation are you clinging to him desperately? Now the story shifts in verse 31. Up to this point, it's really been largely about this Shunammite woman and what she's doing and her reaction to the situation. But she's gotten a hold of the man of God. She's convinced him. She's sticking to him like glue, she says in verse 30. You ain't leaving him, no way, no how. But now in verse 31 it's all about Elisha and what he's doing in the situation. She's there, we know that, she said she would be, but she's quiet in the situation. Now, don't, don't nobody give me a testimony to this, but I know, I know my wife. Well, shoot, I know me, I know how I am. If one of my young'uns was dead, and there was a prophet that was going to go and try to help him in some way, and I didn't know exactly what he was going to do, but I knew he was going to do something, and I even... the fleeting thought came across my mind, he might raise this boy from the dead. I would be telling him now, I would go this way, not that way. I'd be telling him, you need to go a little faster, man. You need, I would be giving him backseat advice. I would be directing him every which way. I'd be micromanaging the situation, explaining exactly what he was doing wrong every step of the way. Now that's just me. I know y'all are much more mild and timid than I am. I understand that. I know how y'all are. Just so sweet and kind and reserved, most of you. I know that. That sarcasm doesn't look good on a preacher, by the way, but it's what it is. It's what that is. That said, what we see from this woman is she is there. She's present, but she's quiet. She doesn't micromanage the situation. You know what she does? She trusts Elisha to contact God to do what God, allow God to do what God's going to do. She doesn't know the outcome. All she knows, go all the way back to verse 21. The last time she saw her boy, he's dead. I think there's something very moving about what she does in verse 21. I want you to go back there and look at that with me. Her son has just died. She gets up. She lays him on the bed of the man of God, and she shuts the door. Maybe I'm putting emphasis on something that ain't needing to be no emphasis on, but let me just tell you what that tells me. is She said, <laughs> you don't shut the door unless there's something that just doesn't need to be disturbed. You're just saying, I'm, that's, I'm just going to close the door on that. That room had been prepared for the man of God. She had made it special for him. And she said, I'm just going to, that, that's, that's a sacred room. That's something I've created special for something for God. And I'm putting my boy in there, and I'm just going to close the door. And I'm going to leave the results to God. Now, that might have meant, by the way, if, she, if that boy had died and never came back to life, that might have meant that there was going to be some serious cleaning that was going to have to go on. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be gross. I'm just saying that 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 with the with the spiritual, or excuse me, with the religious uh, rituals that they would have had to endure with an unclean dead body in a room, there would have been all kinds of things she had to. She was willing to put up with that if that's what it took. She was whatever it meant. She said, "I'm leaving my boy here." this is in God's hands. He's either going to fix it or he's not. And I'm willing to take whatever he says. She was ready for good news and she was ready for bad news. But she knew that only God could fix this situation. Now the next time she does see her son in verse 37, you see there she goes in, she falls on her feet, she bows herself to the ground, and she takes up her son. The next time she sees her son, he's alive. She doesn't see how it gets done. We read about all it gets done. It's it's a very unusual situation. I don't dare try to explain it, but I do know that Mama walks in and her boy's alive. And she's excited about that. She's happy about that. But I want you to hear this and hear this very clearly. She didn't know that was the way it was going to happen. It could have just as well turned out the other way where she walked in and her boy still laid out on the bed. And as best as I can tell, I don't read her mind, the Bible doesn't give us all the details, but as best as you can tell here, she trusted that God would intervene the way that God saw fit, and no matter what, she was going to trust God. There's a song it reminds me of. I know that the choir back at Freedom Baptist Church in Rural Hall would sing it from time to time. Sometimes he calms the storm, sometimes he calms me. Sometimes the storm rages on, but I feel the sweetest peace. It's such a joy to know my Lord knows just what I need. Sometimes he calms the storm, and sometimes he calms me. Do you trust the Lord enough? Do you have enough faith to literally, and I mean literally, not conceptually or ideally, but Actually, in a very real sense, leave it up to him. Do you have enough faith to shut up, quit talking about it so much, quit worrying about it so much, and just shut up and let him do the work? Are you willing to have enough faith to just listen to what he says to do and just do what he says? I have to admit to you, sometimes I know exactly what I'm supposed to do when the Lord tells me something to do. I, maybe a passage in the Bible or a sermon that I've heard or even something my wife says to me, and I'm like, yep, that's what the Lord wants me to do. I don't want to do it. It's not the answer I wanted. You know why? My faith is not enough. Not enough to know that his power, his methods, his outcome is what I need. Because sometimes he calms a storm. Sometimes he calms me. I'm closing, but I want you to hear this. What if you believed, I mean really believed, that God actually has power to raise people from the dead? What if you believed that? Like really believed that? I know we're Christians. We talk about resurrection and we're going to celebrate Easter in a couple of months and all that. But what if you actually believed that these ten stories in the Bible are not fairy tales, but they're actually examples of how the powerful God in heaven took people who were dead, really dead, ready to be decomposed, ready to be in the ground, and he brought them back to life. I think what that might do is it might actually say, I don't need anything else. I need no other power but God's power. I don't want any substitute for his hand working in my life. I think if we really believed it, we'd say, I want nothing more and nothing less than God himself in my situation. That's called expectant faith when we get to that point. Not just trusting, trusting is good, or feeling warm, having nice feelings about somebody good, but actually believing in the power and the necessity, necessity of God in the situation. I think for most of us Christians, we think about God as, as a nice-to-have. He's, you know, Sunday morning this is where we are. Amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Tuesday afternoon, I got problems. I'll talk to you later, Lord. I got stuff going on. It's Thursday morning. You don't understand. I got a deadline. I got a bill. I got a pain. I've got a doctor's appointment. I got stuff to do. He's not necessary in our lives. This is how we view it. He's important. It's good that he's there. We like the warm, inspirational sayings, but we don't depend as if our very lives depend on it. He is a mere mental assent for many of us. He is a mere traditional practice. That's the way mama thought. That's the way grandma believed. So I'm going to do it too, but it's not going to one iota change your life. we got to get to the point where we actually have real physical spiritual and emotional dependence reliance on the lord let me say it simply if you believe that there's got to be something better than this life you want hope for eternity only jesus saves i want to invite you to come to jesus this morning for your salvation I believe that there are some in this room, I, I don't know, it's between you and God, but just my, my personal opinion for what it's worth, I believe there's some in this room that do not know Jesus and do not have heaven as your home. I want to invite you to come to him. There's no other hope for you. There's no other help. You can try to be a good person. You can try to come to church. You can try to clean up your life. You can try all these things, but those are not the things that get people out of the grave. Those are things, actually, unfortunately, the Bible tells me those are things that will put people in the grave. They will not get you out. There's some of you that are concerned about your families. You want them to be saved. You want them to get right. You want them to straighten up, whatever your problems are with them. You want those things, and you're right to want those things. I want you to hear me. Only Jesus saves. Only Jesus saves. You're going to have to fight through some obstacles. You're going to have to get a hold of God, and you're going to have to trust him to do what you need done, whatever that happens to be, and you're going to have to trust him to do it his way. Some of you have got some terrible situations, some terrible circumstances, some health problems, some fi- family problems, some financial problems. There's, I mean, good, all God's children's got problems. We all got problems. But I want you to understand that it is only the hand of God that will intervene in a meaningful way in that situation. Nothing else is going to do. Get the obstacles out of the way. Hold on to the Lord desperately and trust his word. Won't you stand with me, please? I'm going to pray. And after I pray, or well, actually, if you want to come on, you can come on any time. But this, even, this, this, this time, this time we're doing right now, it's called an invitation. I'm going to pray, and we're going to have an, an invitation. I've tried to invite you, but I'm going to officially, formally invite you. We use the front of our church. We see one is already down here praying. We use the front of our church as a place to come and pray. It's a good place to make a marker. If you're, if you're already a believer, you come on down. You pray, talk to the Lord about the things that you heard that convicted your heart. But I really want to make a special invitation to those of you that do not know Jesus as your Savior. If you need Christ, if you are convinced in your heart that your eternal destiny is something other than heaven, if you're, not, if you're convinced of that, I want to invite you, please, to come. I want to introduce you through the Bible to this one who has the resurrection power that I'm talking about, who can save you, and I want to invite you to come. I'm going to pray, and I want you all to come as the Lord moves you. I want you to come on down and talk to the Lord about these things. Father, please move among the people. Your word, you said, is not going to come back void. It's going to do exactly what you sent it to do, Lord, I believe that your your word is powerful. It is intended to, to awaken some that are spiritually dead to bring them to spiritual life. I believe your word is powerful, that it will comfort those who are in miserable, in the depths of misery, of depression and hurting and pain to this morning, Lord. I pray that your word will not come back void. It will do exactly what it's intended to do. And it will wake up some Christians who are snoozing, who are on the edge of just kind of giving it all up and just sort of saying, I'm just going to not worry about any of this anymore, but Lord, you'll wake them up to seek you, to come after you, to find, find time in your presence to cling so desperately to you and to trust you, Lord. Please move. Please change these people. And I'm praying this in Jesus' name.